Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts uh, chapter 15. Before we start reading, um, I was told that this was the last day I could wear white uh, because tomorrow's Labor Day, so I'm just getting it in. Plus, it's going to get really sweaty up here, so I didn't want to offend you. Um, So please stand up and join me in Acts 15, chapter 30, uh, verse 30. It's kind of an obscure place to begin, but trust me, it's all hopefully going to make sense in just a little bit. So, Acts 15, starting in verse 30. So they, and they is Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Judas. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we've preached and the word of the Lord, where we've preached the word of the Lord, and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had previously deserted them and he hadn't continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Sicilia and strengthening the churches. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. When I was uh, 13 years old, I, I, I was really aware of how it was going to work in my home. I had a brother who was a couple of years older, and he was on the verge of getting his license, and, and I remember listening to my mom and him talk, and kind of the rule that was created that I was aware of was if we wanted to drive when we were 16, that we were responsible uh, to pay our own part of the car insurance and to pay for the gas and then we could share with the family car. There would be no freebies in my house. And so at 13, I kind of thought, you know, if I want that freedom, this is just going to be part of my story. I'm going to be a high school student that works. So when I turned 16, my first job, outside of having a paper route, was I, I worked at KB Toys in the mall. Um, I was the guy who stood outside and, and threw a plane in a big circle or got the dogs that flipped up and down and tried to really encourage people to buy stuff that they did not need. Um, and it was a, it was a great job. Um, and my entire junior year, I worked at the mall. The thing with the mall, by the way, is if you work in the mall, you just spend your money at the mall. It's all a big scam. Uh, everybody trades their discount. Anyway, um, you eat a lot of corn dogs, too. Uh, so my senior year, my brother actually worked across town at a Christian bookstore. It's called Joshua's Christian Store. And they had an opening. So during my senior year, my brother said, you should just come work at Joshua's. It's totally different. You're kind of by yourself a lot. You can do your homework at night. It's a pretty slow store. Um, and so I did. I worked there during my senior year. And I had budgeted and saved my money in such a way that my dream was, for the last couple of months of high school, I didn't want to have a job. And so I saved my money, and then I had just been hired to go to Mount Hermon, a Christian camp up in Santa Cruz, to work there for the summer after I graduated high school. So I put in my two weeks' notice, and I had two more shifts remaining at Joshua's store. And my second-to-last shift was towards the end of the night. And again, you worked by yourself. You closed the store up. You, you evened out the cash register. You sent stuff to the bank. It, you were, you know, I had keys in the whole nine. And, and I knew the entire time I worked there how easy it would be 
to steal from this store because the return policy uh, was if you brought something back into the store and you didn't have a receipt, you were able to get a cash refund without ever proving that you actually bought it. So time and time again over my time working at that store, people would come in and say they bought something, which they probably did, and, and I would open the drawer and, and give them cash. And so with my second to last shift, I was really tempted, and, and there, I can still see it. It was in a red box. It was a life application, NIV Bible, genuine leather, eighty nine ninety nine. And with about 15 minutes before that store was to close and no one was in it, I took the Bible off the shelf and did a fake refund and pocketed about 90-something dollars in my pocket. I honestly didn't think anything of it. I didn't feel necessarily guilty. I showed up for my last day of work, and I thought it was odd that the regional manager was there, uh, but he was, and called me into the back office. I wasn't a very good criminal because I signed the receipt like Jeff Martinez. It was the exact same like name. And he confronted me and asked me, and I told him I had stolen. My parents were called in. He threatened to call the police. Um, you know, that was a Friday. That Sunday I was supposed to get on a bus and go down to Mexico with a 100 students from my high school ministry where we were going to build houses, where I had spent the entire senior year in my free time writing the devotional material. I was the student pastor of the trip. I was the one who was going to wake us up every morning and, and lead us through devotions and at the end of the day lead discussions and reflection about where we met God and what God's doing in our lives. And so two days before, I found out as a thief and a fraud. And I remember leaving. My mom was so frustrated with me. I said, I just, can I go to Dave's house, my youth pastor? Went to Dave's house and admitted to him and confessed to him what I had done. And I said, I'm not, your, I'm not the guy to go on this trip. And he said, well, you're an idiot. Um, I said, thanks, Dave. This is really kind youth pastor talk. Um, he goes, but you are going on that trip. And you're still going to be the student pastor. And there's going to be a moment on this trip that I believe God is going to lead you uh, to share with the youth group what you've done. And, and just sure enough, Thursday night in Mexico, my mom and stepdad were actually chaperones on this trip. I got in front of my youth group and, and group of 100 peers. I don't remember what I talked about, but I knew there was a fire behind me. Um, and I talked about our lives and the sin in our lives, kind of being sometimes so smoldering that nobody can really notice, but someday we're going to do something or circumstances will be as such that gasoline will be poured on it and we'll be exposed for who we are. And then I admitted who I really was. I don't remember what came after that, except I was sitting in a lawn chair by myself with and my youth pastor's wife, Shar, came up to me. And Shar said, Jeff, I don't know what your plan is for your life. I don't know what you think you're going to do for a job or what you're going to major in in college. But I just want to tell you this. Whatever you do with your life, you need to keep talking about Jesus. And you need to talk about the grace of God. Because when you talk about those things, they make sense to me. And they inspire me to want to be more like him. If we were to meet at a coffee shop, you and me, and ask, how do I, what's my story? How, how did I get in this ministry gig? I would say it all comes back to stealing a $90 Bible. And that I was a part of this critical moment in my life where I could have gone one of two ways. Where I could have had a church leader who said, that sin, that sin disqualifies you, you're out. Or I could have been so built up in my own shame and guilt that I could have said I'm a fraud and walked away from the whole thing. 
See, it was this watershed moment in my life where the circumstances were such that I had, I could have gone one of a couple of ways. And, and, and I tell you this because I would have never thought four years later I would show up at this church and start working in junior high ministry and that part of this calling that happened in Mexico in 1995 um, is something that, that has, as I reflect backwards, that it helps us look forward to what God is doing. I want to tell you that what I think is happening in Acts 15 is a very similar type of kind of watershed moment. It's a point in the life of the church where it could have gone one way or another. It's a significant moment in the church that if it would have gone a different way, many of us in this room may not be in this room, may not have relationship with Jesus whether you've been with us or you're familiar with the book of Acts, it's the story of the church. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to build this community, this new group of people. And it's going to start in Jerusalem and Judea, and it's going to spread to, to, uh, to the next level, and it's just going to, keep, it's going to keep building to the ends of the earth. And, and in the first few chapters of the books of, book of Acts, we see miraculous growth for the church. People are coming to faith, and these sermons are delivered. Peter, in particular, gives his first sermon, and we see that 3,000 people responded. When you read the first few chapters of Acts, you have to note that those sermons are just dripping in, in Old Testament understandings. Because the primary audience that first heard the message of Jesus in the book of Acts were those with a Jewish background. They were Jews who were familiar with the law and with the teachings and with the prophets and with the wisdom books. They were Jews that were familiar and they were helping them in those sermons connect that Jesus is actually part of all of this and he's a continuation of this covenant and this agreement that God has had with his people and that Jesus is the one that the prophets have talked about and that Jesus is the one from the line of David that we've been waiting for. The first group of people to respond to the gospel in the book of Acts were people who were very familiar, who were from a Jewish background. But as the church grew, so did its audience. And all of a sudden, in chapter 8, chapter 9, when Saul has a conversion, Saul is actually, becomes Paul, right? And and one of the reasons that he's been anointed to be a church leader is to bring the message to Gentiles, to bring it to non-Jewish people. And as the church is now growing with, with Jewish people who understand the, the law and the prophets and the old part of the covenant, and now there's this group of people who've never heard any of that, who've never followed any of that, but they've met Jesus, there was some tension. Because in the Old Testament, the way that God chose to demonstrate, one of the ways he demonstrated, he asks his followers to demonstrate their relationship, their commitment, their covenant, was to be circumcised. And so now you've got this Jewish group of Christians who are looking at this group of Gentiles and they're saying to them, they're saying, okay, well, they've met Jesus, but they haven't been circumcised, so it's not real. It doesn't count. In fact, the the question of the day was, how Jewish does a Gentile have to be to become a Christian? And you have to first kind of understand Moses fully to then understand Jesus? Do we have to continue in some of these ways that worship has happened and ways that we've demonstrated this relationship or has Jesus changed the game completely? And it's such a tension point that the Gentile church is feeling like 
what, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to continue to do what these teachers are telling us? What are we supposed to do? And in Acts 15, it's this pivotal watershed moment for the church. And it's the first council. It's the first official meeting. In fact, all the church leaders from all around would come back to Jerusalem for this meeting, the Council of Jerusalem. And the central question at the council was this whole issue of what does a Gentile have to do to be a follower of Jesus? And do they have to do more than just understand Jesus and follow him? Or do they have to do some other things? Some other things. And so they gather And it's just brilliant. I encourage you to read the whole chapter because it's just brilliant. And they bring this kind of argument forward to the council where there's three different movements. The first movement is Peter, really respected church leader. Peter gets up and his whole goal was to remind the council of their most recent past. That in the first 10 or 15 years of the church, how God, how it's been going. And he references the Cornelius, the first Gentile in the book of Acts, who gives his life to Jesus, that the Spirit comes on. And they, he reminds them of that story. He's like, remember Cornelius? Remember how the Spirit came on that Gentile? We saw it. It was incredible. We all applauded it. We said, that guy has met Jesus and the Spirit is on him. This is for real. And Cornelius, he didn't have to do anything else except follow Jesus. In that moment, Peter reminds the council that there's no racial barriers anymore. That there's no special group of people. That the gospel and the message of Jesus is for everyone. He makes it personal by talking about Cornelius. And then it switches over to Paul and Barnabas after Peter's kind of rests his case. Paul and Barnabas, who are the church's prime missionaries. The church was so proud that you would want, we would want Paul and Barnabas to show up at Lake and stay for a while. These were the people who were out on the ground seeing what God was doing, preaching and teaching, and people were coming to faith. They called Paul and Barnabas to testify, and Paul and Barnabas, the whole objective was they said, let me tell you what God is doing among Gentiles right now in this world. Let me tell you the wonders and the signs that Gentiles are doing. The church is growing. That these Gentiles who never even heard of God are hearing the message of Jesus and they're giving their lives to Him and the Spirit is coming on them and there's crazy stuff happening out there. I know most of you are up here in Jerusalem and and you're just stuck here, but we're out there where God is doing things and it's crazy. He's using Gentiles in amazing ways. Then, after Paul and Barnabas stopped talking about the present... They bring in James, James, the brother of Jesus, probably the one in the room who knows the Old Testament the best. Where's he going to come down on this argument? Is he going to say you need to become more Jewish first before you can become a Christian? And, and, and James is brilliant. He goes back to the more ancient past and he quotes the prophet Amos that basically says there's going to be a day where Gentiles and the whole earth will follow God and know him. He tells the leaders, look, this is all part of our ancient past. He says that God's grace through Jesus Christ is sufficient. He says, why on earth would we make it hard for a Gentile to meet Jesus? But then he does something. He says, so they don't need to be circumcised to be Christian. God's grace does that. Let's not make it hard for people to come. But then he says, "Uh, there are some things they should keep in mind. And he gives this list that seems a bit obscure, where he says uh, these Gentile Christians, they should stay away from food that is sacrificed to idols. 
They should stay away from blood. They should not eat meat that's been from an animal that's been strangled. Um, and that they should stay away from sexual immorality. All of these things point back to Leviticus. All of these things are ways that the Jewish uh, people were instructed earlier on how to live in God's world. There's much debate as to the reasoning. Was this because they wanted to keep some ritual parts of the faith or were there ethical things? The point is this. When James gives this list, he changes the whole argument. Because the main argument to that point was, do you have to be circumcised to follow Jesus? Is that an essential piece of faith? And James changes the whole conversation from saying, no, we don't need that to happen, but here's some kind of community guidelines. Here's this new community is going to be tricky. right? We've got Jew and Gentile, a groups of people who've never interacted with one another. Groups of people who would, when they traveled, would take different routes so that they wouldn't run into each other. A, a group so segregated that they, they didn't even talk to one another. But now, this new institution, this church, this people, this group of people, all in the name of Jesus, we all have equal access, and they're showing up, and now we're in church together? James changes the whole conversation to be, that's not, Jesus is enough. You don't need to do anything else. That God's grace and the blood of Jesus is all that brings us together. There's nothing else required to be saved. But as we live in this community, there's some ways we ought to respect the past a little bit. There's some ways for us to kind of respect Gentile Christians, the kind of Jewish mindset, the way they live, the way God set it up. And you'll be good to do these things. So the council hears this argument and they agree that you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian if you're a Gentile. And they write a letter back to the Gentile church in Antioch. And they write this letter and then they send the letter back with people. And here's the letter. Verse 24. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds with what they said. Troubling your mind like you need more than just Jesus. You need to get circumcised. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them with you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Big debate separating the church they deliver a letter total aside has nothing to do totally with what i'm talking about but it it, you know why they would send people with the letter because it was understood that if you just sent a letter without a relationship or with a person to it it could come off as cold it could come off as distant impersonal so When they sent letters, you sent someone with it to bring personality to it, to bring authority to it, to bring friendship with it. Notice that when they delivered this letter, they all stayed for a while. They didn't just drop the letter off and leave. Boy, couldn't we use some of that in our culture right now? We live in a digital world where our words are so disconnected from actual relationships sometimes. I mean, I couldn't even check the scores yesterday without seeing the comments that people put that are so harsh and so personal about players or coaches. 
And I have to be honest with you, I think about the emails that I write and the emails that come to me. So often our words are so rough and we must kind of, maybe we could look at this and take some encouragement. But anyway, back to the story. So they send the letter and they send the best. They send Paul and Barnabas and they send Silas and Judas with it. And we see that they are so encouraged by this letter. Well, what was being sent back to the church in Antioch? I want to propose to you there were two reasons that they were sent back to this church with the letter. First, they were sent to bring clarity. This should make sense for us right now. They were sent because there were some serious questions about what, what the church is. What's essential to being saved? Who is the church for? How do people belong in a community? How does Jesus connect to Moses and Is Jesus enough or do we need some Moses to make it all make sense? I mean, these were significant questions. And they debated those things. They debated those things at the council. And when they got clarity on those issues, they sent people back to the church in Antioch to bring clarity on the essentials of faith. But they weren't just sent to bring clarity on the essentials of faith. Part of that clarity was that they were sent to bring unity. I mean... We have to understand that the idea, and I think I've just mentioned, the idea of a Jew and a Gentile being in in a room together is just crazy. And all of a sudden, this new community, these people who've met Jesus, it's flying in the face of hundreds of years of culture. It's flying in the face of the way everything else works in society. Now there's this group of people made up of totally different ethnic backgrounds, totally different understandings of the world and God, and now this group of people is together It would have been so easy, quite honestly, for that council to meet and to start making denominations. Okay, here, let's figure it out. Being all together, that's difficult. We understand the argument. Why don't we just come up with a charter as to how Jewish Christians will interact and what they have to do, and then we'll make a separate charter for Gentile Christians. And That probably would have been easier, quite honestly. But they weren't sent to do that. They were sent to bring unity Right Back to Acts 1, back to Jesus, that his message was for the whole world. It was no longer just for a select few. It was for everyone. They were sent to bring clarity. They were sent to bring unity. Settle the differences. Notice that there's compromise on that unity. There's some guidelines of how we're going to do this when we come from such difference. How, what are the things we can agree upon? And we find out that they enjoyed the message so much they were found encouragement. And then the people who brought the message stayed for a while. Some of them stayed a little longer. Paul and Barnabas stayed for a while in teaching. And then there's this final episode we'll get to in a moment where Paul and Barnabas try to move on from there and something happens. But as I've been in this text this week, I guess the question I have for us as a church and for myself is what, what's this mean for us right now at, at Lake Avenue Church? I mean, I, I hope the fairly obvious one is, aren't we so grateful that God's a God of unity and that the message of Jesus wasn't just for a select few who really understood it a certain way, but that his message reached the Gentiles. In fact, in the book of Acts, we really kind of don't hear much from Peter from here on out. Paul becomes the main leader. The church moves from Jerusalem into Asia, into Europe, and marches on towards Rome. This gospel starts spreading out of Jerusalem at a pretty rapid rate and spreads so far that as I look at me and many of you in this room, aren't we glad? Amen? That's the fairly obvious one, but let's get a bit personal because I can find myself reading this 
and being pretty judgmental of this Jewish group of Christians, going, why, why would you make it hard for Gentiles? I mean, come on. And then I have to be really honest that I think our tendency as church people is that we are often like this group of Jewish Christians. Because essentially their argument was this. Unless that group of people experiences God the way I experience God, it doesn't count. Unless this group of people has to do the things that we had to do, or, 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 or the systems that we have grown to understand God, then it's kind of like less than the ideal. It's kind of like junior varsity understanding of church. Now, in a church that I don't think we think about salvation the way they were, but the truth is this, that oftentimes we take our own personal experience of how we've come to understand God, or our own personal experience of how we connected a church, and we look at those who do it differently with an attitude, well, unless they, if they really got it, they would get it like I get it. It would look like what it was for me. When I meet with young youth pastors, I, I do some stuff at APU just to encourage young youth ministry majors. The first thing I tell them is if you think that getting into youth ministry is about you recreating your own youth ministry experience, you might as well quit right now. If you feel like your whole job is to give students what you were given and the same programs and the same system, it's not going to work. You're going to find discouragement really quickly. Because the way God moved in my life in, in the early 90s in Ventura, California, is a very different world and it's a very different culture to do that here in Pasadena. And if I bring an expectation that God's going to do exactly what he did back there with right now, I'm going to be in trouble. But oftentimes this is our take. And I'll just be honest, I think that shows up in a church with over 100 years of history we can reflect back to significant seasons of Lake Avenue Church and have the attitude and the belief that unless it looks like it did here, then we're really not doing as good as we once were. I often hear about these inter this internship program we had in the 70s and 80s where there'd be hundreds of interns working. And, and, and I hear these stories from people, and some of you were those interns, and you talk about that you would be here every waking moment of the summer, and it was incredible because you were just around everything for 40 hours a week, and that's where, and that is incredible, and honestly, I'm jealous of that season. But you know, we have these things called human resource laws now, where we can't have people hang out like that. I think it's a weird way the enemy works, because I grew up at a time where you could just hang out at church. Right now, but we, hired, we, had, we had 19 interns this summer. It was incredible. God met them in powerful ways. One of our objectives this summer was that they would understand how God is using a local church, their, how they fit into that story. And we spent time mentoring them. We spent time exposing them to what God does throughout the history of the church and the history of Lake Avenue. We taught them theology, and then they had practical ways to serve. What happened in those 19 lives is deeply significant. But just because it's 19 and not 100 doesn't mean it's less significant. That God is doing something new among us. I think about it too when people talk about the good days of, of college ministry in general, let alone Lake Avenue. Where there were hundreds of people coming to college group. I, I used to work at Forest Home. College briefing, significant conference. It's happening right now. Campus Crusade started out of it. Billy Graham sensed a call to ministry at it. When I first went to college briefing in 95, there was like 1,500 people. There was a group of 300 from Bel Air Press. There was 200 from this church and this church. By the time I finished leading college briefing in 2002, the numbers of that conference had come down dramatically. 
Because the way college ministry was being done and is being done is so different now. In that annual report we have to do, we have to report the numbers of our ministry. When Jeff Leo and I look at that, we're like, okay, how do we count this? Because what Jeff Leo does at this church is like guerrilla warfare. It's not about one room with a big group of people anymore. It's about the relationships that we have with multiple campuses and the way we're discipling individual students. And there's gatherings in three different times in two different places. And it's partnerships with, with on-ministry campuses. It's incredible. It's hard to know. But it's, it's a different day. God is doing something new, something different. Right? We didn't have the challenge that we have with these kind of mono-generational church plants all over Los Angeles. That young people just kind of want to be with young people because that's what we teach them. Like, God's doing something different, something new. It's hard to take the present and fit it into the past sometimes. But oftentimes we can do that. And I just want to be an agent this morning to tell you that for those of us who do this a lot, where we think about our own personal experience and if it hasn't matched up somewhere that we think it's kind of not at maximum, I just want to report to you this. God is alive and well in our church. God is doing incredible things. I mean, I could, I could list all day. I could tell you that it was hard to find parking most days this summer. Why? Because at the same time, we have a nursery school that is meeting the needs of kids and families, and a good chunk of families in that nursery school aren't necessarily followers of Jesus. So they're dropping off their kids, and then we've got a skills program that's taking some of the most vulnerable on the edge of flunking out of school, being kicked out of public education. But they came here this summer because we were the church that opened up our doors and said, those kids who have a hard time fitting in anywhere, we want them to be part of our, our place. So those kids are coming here. Then we've got an international group of students who just want to be here because America's cool, and, and they've got another part of the campus. Then we've got a day camp going on for, for, for our STARS ministry. Then we have a, a VBS where we get nearly 400 kids, 200 volunteers. Our best numbers are that there were 100 families that came to VBS that aren't connected to a church or to our church. Or, or, or we go on a junior high trip, we take 30 kids to a, a water ski trip and half of them give their life to Jesus. Or we go to Forest Home, we take a couple hundred kids to Forest Home, and then dozens and dozens of kids have either decided, I want Jesus to be the Savior of my life, but even more of them say, no, I'm now understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I want Him to direct everything. Or we have some times like a, a chili cook-off, and hundreds of people are showing up. Or, or, or we have some nights where we just want families to have a time together, to laugh together, to have a meal together, and hundreds of people are showing up for that. Friends, God is doing something new among us, and it's powerful, and it's good, and it's not necessarily going to look like it has before. And that's okay. We have been in a season, I believe, as a church, and many of us believe, a season of clarity and unity. We've been in this breakthrough series where we've been really clear on what this is all about. And, and should you have any question, this church exists for a couple of reasons. One, that people will meet Jesus Christ and give their life to Him. And two, that they will grow mature in Christ and become His disciples. How many times do we hear this? That we're all sent. That we're all to become complete in Christ. This is what it's clear. You know what I think has also been really clear lately? That's new? that prayer is pretty important. And that we as a church need to be praying more and seeking God for His blessing and for His answers and for His wisdom. I believe that this church is praying more in the last few months than it has as a collective body. 
We've opened up these nights, these, these Sunday nights, uh, these upper room nights. When we had the first one, some of us that were feeling led to do this, we said, you know, let's not get our expectations up. If we, by the end of these things, could have 100 people show up, that would be really cool. And the first night we had over 500 people come to just simply pray for the future of our church. Friends, this has been a season of intense clarity of what the essentials of faith are on discipleship, on the idea that everybody in this church is sent, not just a few special missionaries or a couple of pastors, each one of us, you included, that God has sent you in this world to bring his message and his love and his reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. So a couple of weeks ago, we we put an insert in and give you an opportunity to respond to say, yes, I understand my sentness. And again, over 400 people say, yes, that's how I want to follow Jesus. Friends, God is doing something among us. It's been a season of unity. Have you sensed that? That we kind of like being together? When we bring kids in here, doesn't it just warm your heart? Instead of, And I, I'll even tell you, I think it's wonderful, and it's where we need to grow as a church. Right now, if a kid started crying, we need to be okay with that. Like there's this idea that being together is messy, almost as messy maybe as a Jew and Gentile, because we all come from such different walks of life, different experiences, different understandings of things. But there's this idea that we really enjoy being together and we enjoy seeking God together. That's been the beautiful thing about Upper Room for me, is that across the things that typically divide us, we come to a place, and is it everybody's cup of tea? No, not all the time. But we're talking about stuff. The best conversation I had a couple weeks ago is an older couple, and if you're here remind me your name, came up to me and said, just want you to know, we came to one upper room and we're not coming back, but we'll be praying for you. I thought that was really healthy. Because what it wasn't was, went to that upper room, what are you guys doing over there? The drums? Really? You guys, until it looks like me. No, it was, we're in this togetherness, it's a bit messy sometimes. That we like being together. That's ultimately what the picnic thing is about. It's hard for us to think about this. You know, how many people have said, well, what are we, we going to do at the picnic? We're going to have a picnic. <laughs> We're going to eat some food and talk, play. Greg's not going to be in a dunk tank. There's no raffle. There's no ministry fair. It's just a picnic. Because families have meals together. Amen? See, we're growing in our togetherness. But ultimately, I want to encourage you with this. I think that we are in a season of unity, that there is a freedom to talk about some really tough stuff. And oftentimes, when you're not together as a family, right, the dysfunction ensues, like there's things families don't talk about because of the intimacy. But as we become more intimate, I think we become more brave, more courageous, I mean, we're having serious conversations right now about the future of our church. We titled a series, The Breakthrough. You know how much humility it takes for a senior pastor and a group of leaders to say, we want God to do something new? We've talked, and and trust me, many of us, nobody sits down in a room, very few people sit down in a room and go, what can we talk about that will frustrate at least half of the church? (laughs) But we sit in a room and we pray. And as we're trying to bring a gospel to a neighborhood and to a world that desperately needs it, guess what? Some things bubble to the surface. So we have to actually talk about things like immigration. And as tense as that is for some of us, we did it without splitting the church. 
We've got more talking to do. But see, it didn't become an essential piece. It wasn't like, if you guys are going to talk about that, then you must not really know Jesus. It was a non-essential. It was something we need to grow in our discipleship together, but we're talking about it. I believe this also, that there is great freedom and courage to talk about what God might do in the future of Lake Avenue Church. That change, even subtle change, that that's okay. Whatever God wants. The idea of change seems to be all right. I mean, I'm not even wearing a tie. It's pretty good for us. No, I'm just kidding. Friends, this, I, just, I just want to be that Barnabas, that, that Paul who comes into the council to say, let me tell you what God is doing and it's good. And it might not look like you used to th- you've, you've seen it before, but it's happening and it's good. The, this story ends really in a, a challenging way. Because they kind of finish up in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas. Paul gets this great idea. He goes, here's what we ought to do. Let's go back to all the churches that we've ministered to and check in on them and see how they're doing. Barnabas says, great idea. I'm going to bring this guy. And Paul goes, I don't like that guy. He left us. I don't trust him. And then we read that they had a sharp disagreement. And they separated. And, and Barnabas went one way and Paul went the other. In fact, we're not going to hear much more from Barnabas the rest of Acts, if anything. And I don't think that story's in there for, to say that conflict is okay. If anything, I think it's a sobering story. I mean, here's Paul and Barnabas. They had done so much together. They had experienced God so clearly together. They had seen God do a crazy amount of things. They had ministered together for years. One argument about one person brought disagreement to the point where they separated. Friends, we should never, never let non-essential things separate us. Paul and Barnabas still believe Jesus was Lord. And Jesus does something beautiful that he takes the brokenness in this world, the brokenness in relationship, and he brings it together. There will be a temptation for us as a church, even though we've come so far together, that we've seen God do incredible things together. There will be a temptation for some of us to go, let's just do it the other way. I liked it when it wasn't so tense sometimes. Let's just go do our own thing our own way and forget the journey that we've been on together. Friends, we cannot run the risk of going, hey, that summer 2013, that was unique. We liked being around each other, where we were seeking God together. That was cool. We did that in 2013. We can't do that. We have to remember that we have to fight for clarity. We have to fight for unity. We have to continue to fight to be together. And, and I can't think of anything more fitting that demonstrates that than, than having communion this morning. It's the table that unites all of us, no matter where we've come from, what we've done, that we all together come in unity to a table to declare that Jesus and His grace are sufficient. In fact, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup, when he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant. The the old covenant, there were some things that had to be done. You had to do some things, mainly circumcision for the men. That will mark the old covenant. New covenant, my blood. This one's on me. New covenant, nothing to do with you. All to do with me. 
So my blood is going to be shed, and I will die so that you can have relationship with me and that you can live in freedom and beauty and grace. New covenant. And that's what, that's what communion is. It's an opportunity for us to remember the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus and how that act on the cross and his resurrection brings unity, brings us together because we all need it. And so we're going to continue to worship through communion. Jeremy's going to come up and lead us in a time of confession. After the time of confession, please come forward. If you cannot come forward, someone will come to you. Grab the juice and grab the, the bread, and we'll take it together. All the way over here to my right, your left, is a gluten-free table if you have a gluten allergy. But, but we're going to demonstrate our unity around the essential, around the essential of Jesus Christ Christ.